<laughs> so I'm supposed to start over now for recording purposes. <laughs> so Steve spoke last night about the Four Noble Truths and this deep message that the Buddha gave us through them of what he discovered about how we can arrive at a place of deep peace, deep contentment in our lives. And we can read and we can hear about and we can come to understand this teaching in a very thorough way, in a very sophisticated way. But until we actually see it for ourselves in our own experience, it doesn't do us a bit of good in terms of reducing our suffering. Insight is the process that translates the Four Noble Truths from kind of secondhand theoretical knowledge into our own personal firsthand knowledge. It's the process by which we realize the Four Noble Truths and come to see for ourselves their validity so that they can bring about the deep transformation in our lives that helps to free us from suffering. And in this process of the unfolding of insight, it can be helpful at times to have some understanding of the process, some idea of how it happens, or even just what is actually meant by insight. So that's what I want to talk about tonight, insight. And if, I'm, if what I'm saying isn't yet something that you've seen in your direct experience, that's okay. In fact, you're free to just completely ignore everything I say tonight. It's all optional material. Or maybe just to keep some general sense of the direction of the practice, to hold it as an aspiration. And I'm gonna to touch on a number of points related to insight. So it's really just, you know, as always with the Dharma talks, to take what's useful and relevant to your own practice. You know, there might just be a few points here or there that, you know, really resonate with what's going on for you right now, what you're seeing. And uh, there'll be other opportunities to hear the rest because we really just talk about the same things over and over again anyway. <laughs> so I wanna start out by telling the story of Bahia. This is one of the traditional stories from the, the ancient texts, the ancient uh, Pali Canon. This is the story of Bahia of the bark cloth. And he was a guy who lived at the time of the Buddha uh, who kind of dropped out, dropped out of the rat race and wandered off uh, into the countryside to be uh, kind of a wandering ascetic, one of these people that roams around and lives the homeless life in pursuit of uh, liberation, spiritual attainment, uh, as there are today in India. If you go to India, you'll still, still see plenty of people kind of wandering around in bark cloth, uh, seeking enlightenment. And he was practicing very sincerely, you know, living a very simple life, obviously, um, doing devotional practices, uh, cultivating concentration meditation. And his mind had become really quite calm and quite clear and quite collected. And he even thought that he might be an arhat, a fully enlightened being. But he wasn't entirely sure about that. And as it happened, there was a former relative of Bahia's that had passed away recently and been reborn in the deva realm the celestial realm of beings with fine material existence and was living around the same area where Bahia was wandering around. And one day Bahia passed by this deva without noticing her, of course, uh, while he was kind of ruminating and mulling over in his mind, well, where am I on my path? Am I really enlightened yet or not? 
And the deva noticed those thoughts in Bahia's mind. And out of compassion, she materialized in a human form, in a visible form, and appeared to him. And she let him know as gently as she could that actually, in fact, he wasn't an arahant yet. <laughs> and actually, in fact, he didn't have the slightest inkling of true wisdom yet, not even a little bit. But she told him that at this time, there was a Buddha in the world, a fully enlightened teacher, and where he could be found, and that if Bahia could find him, then the Buddha would answer all his questions and clear everything up for him. So as you can imagine, this made quite an impression on Bahia, who hadn't seen a deva before, let alone one that had been a former relative. <laughs> and he was filled with a deep longing and a sense of urgency to speak with this Buddha, this amazing enlightened teacher that was there in the world and not that far away from him. So he set out at once, traveling by night and by day, uh, several days journey, walking on foot, until he eventually managed to track down the Buddha. And the Buddha at the time just happened to be in the midst of his alms round. It was in the morning, uh, before noon, at the time when he and his uh, companions, his fellow monks, were going out uh, with their alms bowls to collect their one meal for the day. And uh, this is an important part of the day. You know, all the monks that he was with needed to get fed. And so he didn't think it was an appropriate time to be offering teachings. Traditionally, he would offer teachings in the afternoon after all the eating was done during the time of the, the refraining from eating, the same uh, one that we practice here with the eight precepts. So he kind of put Bahia off and said, we'll come back a little bit later after we're done eating. But, but, he, but Bahia would not be satisfied with this. He wanted to know the Dharma right away, right now. So eventually, the Buddha relented. And this is the very uh, brief teaching that he gave Bahia, just as he paused for a few minutes while he was getting ready to go on alms round. And he said, Bahia, you should train yourself in this way. In the seen is only what is seen. In the heard is only what is heard. In the sensed is only what is sensed. In the cognized is only what is cognized. This is how you should train yourself, Bahia. When for you there is only what is seen in the seen, only what is heard in the heard, only what is sensed in the sensed, only what is cognized in the cognized, then, Bahia, you will not be with that. When you are not with that, then, Bahia, you will not be in that. When you are not in that, then, Bahia, you will be neither here nor beyond nor anywhere between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. And it's said that through this brief Dharma teaching, the mind of Bahia of the bark cloth was completely liberated from all suffering. And the Buddha went on his way. And Bahia went on his way, fully enlightened now. And it's said that he was uh, just a few moments later gored and killed by a mad cow something that apparently used to happen a lot in ancient India. Uh, giving some validation, I have to say, to his sense of urgency in receiving the teachings. <laughs> so I want to talk about you know, this pithy teaching. There's a lot in there, even though it's very short, obviously, enough for enlightenment. And the first part was these training instructions that the Buddha gave to Bahia. 
that you should train yourself in this way, and the seen is only what is seen, and the heard is only what is heard, and the sensed is only what is sensed, and the cognized is only what is cognized. This is how you should train yourself. And this might sound a little familiar to you, might have kind of a familiar ring to it, because this is essentially how we instruct you guys to train yourselves. You know, we didn't just make this up. <laughs> this is where it comes from. So we tell you, you know, when you see something, just know that you're seeing something. When you hear something, just be aware of hearing. When you feel something in the body, just be aware of that feeling. When you think something, just be aware that thinking is happening, and on and on. These are the very kinds of instructions that the Buddha gave back in the day, 2,500 years ago. And over and over again in his teachings, the Buddha was always instructing his students to break down their experience into its component parts, just as we're doing here, and then to see those parts for just exactly what they are, like examining the different pieces of a puzzle, this puzzle that we call me. And we can think of this as one definition of vipassana, or insight, which literally, that word, that Pali word, vipassana, means seeing things in different ways and in a different way. So it's about learning to see ourselves in a very radically different way, a very different way from how we normally think about ourselves and what we are. So the Buddha is repeatedly instructing us, and we're repeatedly instructing you, to break it all down, break down the body, break down the mind, look at the building blocks that make them up. So why? You know, why? What's the point of that? A question you may have perhaps asked yourself at least once during your time here. And the key to answering that question of why is in the second part of that teaching that the Buddha gave to Bahia. The part that says, when for you there is only what is seen in the seen, only what is heard in the heard, only what is sensed in the sensed, only what is cognized in the cognized, then, Bahia, you will not be with that. When you are not with that, then you will not be in that. When you are not in that, you will be neither here nor beyond nor in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. The meaning of this passage may not be immediately clear, but all of these rather cryptic statements about, you know, like where Bahia is and isn't, um, are really pointing to the dispelling of the, our mistaken sense of our own identity, our own existence, and pointing to this fact that we really don't exist in the way that we think we do. That when we look closely and carefully and repeatedly at our experience, when we fully see the building blocks that make up our experience, then we'll come to know in a very convincing way that there is nothing else there. There really isn't anything else there. That's all it is. There is only what is seen. There is only what is heard. There is only what is sensed and what is cognized. Just that, just those simple experiences. And no person or personality or self or soul or being or core or whatever you want to call that idea. 
there's none of that with them or in them or around them or between them or through them or however you want to phrase that idea. This is the realization of what we call anatta, which is often translated as no self or non-self or sometimes no soul. It's the impersonality of experience that Steve spoke about last night. And as the Buddha said, it's just in realizing this that we find the end of suffering, that all of our difficulty in life really comes from our mistaken sense of what we are, who we are. And it's that fundamental misunderstanding that the Buddha was referring to when he spoke about ignorance, when he spoke about delusion. And this may or may not make a certain amount of kind of intellectual sense to you at this point in your practice. And that's completely okay. You know, whatever your relationship to this teaching is, is fine. What we're out to do in our practice is to investigate this theory. You know, that's what we're here to do. You know, if it were already completely clear, we wouldn't need to be here. But we want to find out, you know, does insight actually reduce suffering? Is this really true, what the Buddha said? As Steve said last night, you know, the Buddha used to say all the time, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. So we're here to find out for ourselves, you know, is that right? Was he right? So how do we actually do that? How do we come to see the experience of insight for ourselves, to confirm those noble truths for ourselves? How do we come to see the breaking down or the breaking up or the breaking through the sense of our own identity? And if we sat up here, you know, and gave you the instruction to, okay, you know, we're here for nine days, just sit quietly and see through your mistaken sense of your own identity. You'd say, you know, okay, whatever. <laughs> so that's not how we approach it. You know, there's just no way to, to dive into that task like that. And so the Buddha broke it down for us. You know, he told us which pieces of the puzzle to start to look at. Because we have to take it in manageable chunks. So he said, notice the breath. Notice the body. Notice feelings. Notice thoughts. Notice sensations. Notice when you feel pleasure and pain, you know, and so on, giving us kind of this map of all the pieces to the puzzle. And that we can do, you know, that's manageable. You know, we are all doing it. This is what we're here doing during these nine days. We can learn bit by bit to tease out those different threads of our experience. You know, we can listen to the meditation instructions and just try to follow them as best we can. Just finding one piece of the puzzle here one piece of the puzzle there, and little by little, examining them. Just a breath, just a pain in the knee, just one, another obsessive thought train. And just try to feel the bare experience of them. What are they really in and of themselves? And at times for all of us, um, this is bound to feel a little silly. <laughs> or at least a little uh, disingenuous on some level, especially until we start to really get some personal val validation of the process, because we just feel like me, you know, don't we? As we sit here, I'm me, I feel like me. 
We may hear these teachings about how we don't exist in the way we think we do, about how we're really made up of all these little bits and pieces of fleeting experience, about how if we can see through it, see, see through it all of that, we'll be able to get some relief from the drudgery and the oppression of it all. And maybe we get that you know, intellectually or intuitively to some extent. But when we close our eyes and we feel the breath or we feel the pain in the body or we notice a sound or a thought, we still just really mostly feel like me. So we don't really get it on the deeper level. But at some point, if we keep going with this process, there comes a point eventually when we do have a moment of insight. Insight is what happens that causes our minds to get it, to really get it, to get it on that deep level, beyond the theory, beyond the ideas and the philosophy, but to really know it in our own personal experience. So that's when these teachings start to go beyond just an intellectual appreciation go beyond even that intuitive sense that many of us have, that yeah, this really makes sense. This really seems right to me. It's a fundamental shift in the way that we're perceiving the flow of changing experience that we usually interpret as self and other. And this is Vipassana. This is insight. This is how we gain genuine insight, genuine wisdom. So we might ask ourselves, why is it so difficult to see the different elements of our experience just as they are? You know, if it's really true that this is what we are, just this collection of different strands of physical and mental experience, why is it so hard to see? Why do I always feel so much like me? If this is really the truth, shouldn't it be more obvious? Shouldn't we all know this already? The basic reason why this truth eludes us and why we fall into ignorance and delusion is that our minds are really powerfully conditioned, evolved actually, to mush together all of the different strands of experience, all of the different phenomena that are happening into these very compact, composite bundles of experience. And those amalgams, those constructions made up of all the different little bits and pieces that have been smushed together by the mind are what we get used to tuning into, what we get used to thinking of as reality, so we don't notice the smaller components. Or if we do notice them, we don't pay much attention to them. They're kind of below the radar. And so we mostly miss out on this level of our lives as just a stream of mental and physical experiences. One of the key functions of mind that's involved in Uh, this mushing together of everything, is what we call perception. And perception is that function of mind that remembers and recognizes familiar experiences so that we don't have to be constantly uh, figuring out the same things over and over again. Um, I don't watch a lot of movies, but I know there's one where like the guy wakes up every morning or maybe it's a TV show and like he can't remember anything from the day before and he's got like this long this long journal he's got to read to catch up on you know to remind himself like what who he is and what he's doing there so without perception that's how our lives would be so it's really um, helpful and convenient it's a really great uh, capacity of mind to have you know so when we go to bed at night 
You know, if we've got a partner, they're there next to us, we know who they are. <laughs> and when we wake up the next morning, we still know who they are. This is really convenient, really helpful. <laughs> when the faculty of perception is impaired, you know, if somebody's had a brain injury or an illness, like with um, Alzheimer's disease, and there's not that ability to recognize and remember, it's a big problem. It makes life really hard. So it's not at all that we want to stop perception or even really to suspend it. And in fact, we can't. In the Buddhist system of psychology, it's said that perception is a universal element of consciousness. So in the sense that it's there in every moment of consciousness in some way. So in any moment that we're receiving some kind of sensory input, whether it's through the physical senses or through the mind activity, perception is just immediately and automatically arising to recognize it, to remember what it is, to perceive it, to identify it or to try its best to do so. And because this happens so quickly and so automatically and so continuously, and has been through most of our lives, if not all, certainly from very early in our development as human beings, we usually just completely miss the fact that it's happening. And the perception, that conceptual labeling the categorizing, the generalizing, that gets all mushed together with the actual experience, with the actual stimulus that gave rise to it in the first place, into what appears to be just one compact single experience. So I want to offer you now um, a really deep and profound Dharma teaching. Okay, so get ready. You know, prepare your mind. This could be the moment when it all <laughs> it all breaks open. Got it? <laughs> I'll save this one for later. So how long, you know, does it take for your mind to tell you what this is? That's the point of this. Can you even notice it? Can you even separate it out? How long does it take for your mind to identify what this is and to tell you all sorts of things about it? The Buddha had a slightly different version of this teaching, which is maybe a little bit more poetic. So you can try it on this one, too. It went like this. That's the difference between me and the Buddha. <laughs> but it's the same idea. Yeah. So perception is just there. It's just automatic. So the name, or the idea for this thing, is what we call nama. That's the Pali term for it, which actually comes from the same root as our English word, name, so name, nama. It has the same idea of identification, recognition, labeling. So nama refers to the whole mental component of experience, the thoughts, the ideas, the feelings. Everything that we can experience and know with the mind falls within this realm of nama. Whereas the shape and the colors themselves the seeing of those colors and patterns is what we call rupa, or matter. That's the physical, material aspect of our experience, that whole realm of materiality, physicality, embodiment. So rupa is everything that we can experience and know through the body and its physical sense organs. 
So I have, I have one more of these uh, visual aids here, and this one might be a little bit different. So just see what your mind does with this one. And I realize my visual aids here are a little bit small for those of you in the back. But can you guys kind of see that? <laughs> so what does perception do with this one? Does it know? Or is it kind of grappling? You know, sometimes we can see the mind kind of struggling with an unfamiliar object. It turns out this is actually, um, this is an old-fashioned coat hook or something, like in a log cabin. My daughter got this from the historic uh, theme park at Sturb Old Sturbridge Village a few days ago. So you would take it and like hammer it into the wall and then you could, in your log cabin, and then you could hang your coats on it. Did anybody get it right? <laughs> <laughs> so this also kind of, drives home the point that you know, perception, although automatic and constant, is not always right. <laughs> so with unfamiliar objects or experiences, if we pay attention, we may see, kind of catch the process of perception and action. We might get a chance to kind of catch it in the act of trying to figure out, trying to identify, trying to match up the experience with previous ones. And I can see this. Um, with my daughter right now, you know, she's just kind of learning her letters and her numbers. So the perception of what those symbols mean is not so automatic. You know, so she kind of gets through A, B, C, D, E, and then, you know, F is kind of a stumbling block for her right now. Like it's so much like E, but it's missing its feet, you know. So you can see the little wheels turning in her head, you know, trying to figure it out. The fact, faculty of perception coming in, making those connections for her, which are new, of like, what is this thing and how do I identify it? Or if the numbers, she kind of gets up through 12, and then the whole teen thing is a little mystifying. You know, like she doesn't know why 13 isn't 13, why 15 isn't 15. You know, it's, it's all very confusing. So she has to really think, okay, 12, and then uh, which one is next? <laughs> and we can see this uh, same thing kind of sometimes happening in our practice. So some of you are reporting, you know, that you're, you're seeing something in your experience. You know, there's something that awareness is picking up on, but you just can't quite tell what it is. You know, it's like perception isn't really uh, kicking in. So the experience might not be anything too unusual. You know, maybe it's some emotion, or maybe it's just since even sensation in the body. But because we're seeing it from this very different perspective of really strong concentration and awareness, Perception doesn't actually recognize it as being familiar. So it's kind of like we have to relearn about that experience, recategorize it, re-identify it from that different vantage point of the deeper uh, concentration and deeper awareness. So perception and sense stimulus, they get all mixed together in our minds. And we don't see that they're actually two separate experiences that are happening. And from there, it's just a quick you know, hop, jump, and leap um, into the proliferation of ideas and opinions and stories all about that basic experience. And we all know how that goes. You know, we, the train gets going, and we jump on it. And very quickly, we're far, far away from the actual experience, just the bare experience that gave rise to it all. So this is another important place where equanimity comes into our practice. You know, we begin by cultivating awareness and mindfulness. That's always the starting point. That's always the bottom line. That's always what we come back to in our practice. 
just that ability to connect with what's happening in the moment. And little by little, you know, sure enough, the other factors of enlightenment start to come into play, they get stronger. But until that last factor of equanimity kind of kicks in and gets uh, mobilized, we won't be able to clearly see the different components of our experience just for what they are. Until equanimity reaches a certain level, we might be stuck in that kind of uncomfortable place that Steve was describing, where we're aware of happening, what's in, we're aware of what's happening in the present moment. You know, we are here in the present moment. We're not lost in thought. We're connected with the stream of what's happening right now, but we can't quite really see it clearly yet. Um, we're seeing it through a veil of reactivity still. And that reactivity keeps us from really being able to fully and clearly see it just for what it is. From really being able to clearly see those different strands of nama and rupa, mentality and materiality. The actual physical and mental components that are making up the experience. And as we've mentioned many times, this is completely okay. You know, this is also just a part of this process of insight, is moving through this kind of uncomfortable territory. We're not quite where we started out, but we're not quite at our destination yet. So we don't have to try to, to force the equanimity or to manufacture it. It's really important to remember that. Our job is just to continue to be aware as best we can in whatever way we can. And that in itself is what will develop the equanimity factor further so that it gets stronger. And this is why we're always asking you about and pointing out to you how you're relating to what you're aware of. There's this really important piece to the puzzle. How are you relating to what you're noticing? Our, our reactivity to what we see when we're aware tends to run in uh, one of two basic directions. One is what we might call catastrophizing the doom and gloom mode. You know, we're seeing it, but uh, it's all so awful. You know, it has awful ramifications about who I am or how my life is or how I've lived it or, you know, my prospects for this practice or awakening runs along those lines, you know. Uh, the other filter that we, might, that we tend to see through is what we might call the romanticizing filter. Things get calm and clear and quiet and, oh, it's so beautiful and I'm at one with the universe and it's all just lovely and, uh, you know, very spiritual experience and everything's great. <laughs> Both of these are, you know, falling into those extremes, the ex extremes of reactivity, either negative or positive. You know, you can take your pick, but they're both filters of reactivity, overlays on what the actual experience is, just in its bare reality. But the Buddha didn't tell Bahia to train himself in this way. And the scene is just the scene, and oh, it's really horrible. And he also didn't tell him to train himself in this way. And the scene is just the scene, and oh, it's so fabulous. <laughs> Instead, he said, you know, in the scene is only what is seen, period. You know, end of story. So this instruction in itself is suffused with an attitude of equanimity just in its simplicity, just in its matter-of-factness. And this is the kind of balanced awareness, equanimous awareness, that we're moving towards in our practice, little by little, you know, whatever path it takes for us to get there. And if at any time we sense, you know, a different tone to our awareness, one other than equanimity, then it's just to include that in what we're being aware of. 
then when the equanimity does get stronger, which it will, if we just keep doing this practice, we'll be able to be aware of the nama and the rupa clearly, the mental and physical components of experience without that intervening veil of reactivity, just as they are. And this is the first point of entry into the realm of insight. And it has a name in the traditional teachings, this clear, equanimous seeing of experience just as it is. It's called Nama Rupa Paricheda Jnana. Nama Rupa Paricheda Jnana. <laughs> they like compound words in Pali. And the meaning of that is very rich. So the Nama is the mentality, the mentality aspect of our experience. The Rupa is the materiality, the physical aspect of our experience. Jnana is a word that means wisdom, knowledge. And this paricheda word um, has the sense of discernment or differentiation or definition. So it's that knowledge that's able to clearly discern mental and physical phenomena. This is the entry, entry point to insight. It's also sometimes called diti vasudhi, which is a word that means purification of view because it clears up our confusion about what's actually happening. It clears up our view, really, of what's actually happening so that we can see accurately those physical and mental building blocks of our experience. And again, this is not in any way an intellectual understanding or insight. You know, so we can, again, we can hear these teachings and get it. You know, we can think that makes sense, but that's a very different thing from the actual firsthand personal knowledge of it. The insight is that visceral felt sense that this is really all there is. These strands of physical experience, these strands of mental experience. And it's very clear experientially in the moment, not philosophically, that this is all there is. This is all that's happening. And from within that perspective of insight, our ordinary sense of ourselves does drop away. That's when it drops away. And we don't just feel like me anymore. We just feel a breath, or we just feel a sensation in the body, or we just notice a thought or emotion passing through the mind. Nothing that we haven't noticed a hundred or thousands of times before. But the mind is connecting with it in a very different way. And we really feel the bare experience without all the veils, without all the overlay, without confusion, without the mushing together of all the components into larger conglomerations. And it may be for only the briefest moment. It doesn't have to last long. But it's a very important one, because that's the moment where we really start to get it, that this is really all there is. And the seen is just the seen, and the heard is just the heard, and the sensed is just the sensed, and in the cognized is just the cognized. So I wanted to guide you through a little bit of a reflection at this point, which is one that I sometimes use with students. So just sitting as you are, this is not a deep meditation, <laughs> but just to kind of check out your hand, wherever it happens to be. So just to look and take in the shape. Notice the colors, like you could even n name the colors that you see there. 
Notice where there are shadows or darker spots. So really taking in just this whole image that we call hand. Maybe the area around the nails, the colors there, shapes. And now as you sit there, just to close your eyes now, just for a few moments, and feel that hand that you were just looking at. Really bring the fullness of your attention to it, down through the wrist, into the palm, out through the thumb, all of the fingers. Notice what you feel there. Temperature, maybe heaviness or lightness, tingling, vibration, throbbing. And now opening your eyes again and just reflecting. So are these two experiences the same? Looking at the hand and feeling the hand. What do you think? From the perspective of the insight into Nama Rupa, it's very clear that these are not the same experience. In the scene is just the scene. The experience of seeing the hand, that's one thing. That happens in the visual plane the realm of color and shape and form. And in the sensed is just the sensed. The experience of feeling that hand is something else altogether. It happens in a completely different plane from the seeing, in the tactile plane. And it's very clear from the perspective of that insight that these are two very different and distinct experiences, even though we call them both hand. So here's another part to it now, you know, look at your hand again. See the colors and shapes and things there. And now deliberately arouse that faculty of perception. So note it, you know, just as you do in your meditation, you know, hand, hand, hand. (laughs) And now close your eyes again, connect with the felt sensations again. And note those as hand, hand, hand. So opening your eyes again, you can check out, you know, is the perception, is the name and idea of the hand the same as the visual image of the hand? Is it the same as the tactile experience of the hand? that felt sense of that part of the flesh. So again, from the perspective of Nama Rupa, it's very clear that they're not. You know, the physical experiences are Rupa, just that, the seeing and the feeling, and the mental experiences, the Nama, the faculty of recognizing and naming and knowing and being aware are something else, something else entirely. Those happen in the mental plane. It's a completely different realm which again is another distinct and different strand of our experience. And we may start to feel this at times in our practice. 
So maybe we're sitting and following the breath and kind of noting in, out, or rising, falling, or whatever notes that we use, if we use them, to go with the breath. And suddenly it's just so clear. The feeling of the breath is one thing. And that cognizing, that conceptualizing of the the experience, to give it that label, is something else entirely. That these are two distinct and different components of the experience. Or maybe we're out walking, and that internal uh, narrator, the the yogi Kosell, is commenting (laughs) on every blow-by-blow play of our walking meditation (laughs) and all of its uh, fascination. And suddenly it's just so clear. You know, the feeling of walking is one thing, and that strand of mental commenting, that's something else. It's a different experience. So this is how we're aware of things when the insight into nama and rupa is active. It's the entry point into the realm of insight. And once we can see clearly what the building blocks of experience are, then we can begin to see into the deeper truths about their nature. So from this point, we can start to see the lawfulness of the links that connect one to another to another in an unending stream. We can start to see their breathtaking impermanence. We can start to see their uncontrollability. We can start to see their inability to really provide any lasting satisfaction. All of these deeper insights become accessible only when we can connect with nama and rupa, with physical and mental phenomena, just as they are. I want to talk a little bit now about the other side of this discussion, which is what insight is not. An insight, in the very particular sense that we mean by it here, which is a very particular sense of the word, insight in the sense of seeing through our mistaken sense of ourselves, our mistaken understanding of ourselves, insight in the sense of coming to the point where we experience what we call me in this very different kind of way what we might think of as insight with a capital I. So in that sense, insight doesn't just refer to anything or everything that we might realize in the course of our practice. And the fact is, for most of us, um, that we do usually realize all sorts of things in the course of our practice, in the course of our meditation. You know, things about ourselves, about our past history, about our psychological and emotional conditioning, about others in our lives and their history and their psychological and emotional conditioning, about human nature and life and the world in general, all of which can be very helpful to leading a healthier and more satisfying and more skillful life. But they aren't actually insight, that insight with a capital I in the sense that we mean by it here. I remember very vividly the first three-month retreat that I sat here Um, which was kind of at a crossroads in my life about 15 years ago. I had just gotten engaged to my now husband, and we were planning our wedding, and we were moving back across the country to the East Coast, and I had decided to take a sabbatical, you know, to sit the three-month retreat and do some traveling and kind of do some things that I'd wanted to do before I settled down. (laughs) Settled down. (laughs) But we had also, um, at this point, just before I came on retreat, we had started planning the wedding, 
which was going to be the, like the following year after I was done with my sabbatical. And both my parents and my fiance had uh, strong and somewhat contradictory ideas about what we ought to be doing for the wedding. And my parents' views on this were particularly relevant because they were probably going to be footing a large portion of the bill. So we couldn't just kind of <laughs> dismiss them. So as you might imagine, you know, a lot of my mental storms during this period of retreat were around all of this. You know? And I had a lot of mixed feelings. You know, I wanted to please everybody on one hand, but I also wanted to be true to myself and meet my own needs. But I also wasn't sure what I really wanted, what my own needs really were. You know, it's just one of those times when I was kind of grappling with, you know, just being at a transition and changing from, you know, my main role in life being that of a daughter to my main role being that of a partner. And with hindsight, you know, I'm so deeply grateful that I had the chance to sit a long retreat at that point in my life. You know, I got a lot of clarity, a lot of insight with a little eye into, you know, what were my true thoughts and feelings and what did I really want and need and why? And all of that understanding was tremendously helpful in navigating, you know, not just the wedding, which turned out fine, but that whole period of transition in my life, transition in my relationships with my parents and with my husband and with myself. And none of that was what we would call insight with a capital I. And yet it was tremendously beneficial, tremendously helpful. So I don't want in any way, you know, disrespect the psychological and personal insight an understanding that can come out of a period of retreat. It can be tremendously valuable. But it's also really helpful to the process to keep it in perspective, you know, to be clear about what we're doing here and why we're here and what's kind of insight with the little eye and what do we mean by insight with the big eye. So that we don't lose sight of what our larger aspiration is, what the greater potential of the practice is, and so that we aren't content to settle for just some of the benefits of the practice, but we really hold out uh, for the big prize. Also, kind of in respect to what uh, insight is not, I wanted to talk a little bit about concentration and the effects of concentration that we can experience. Because the mental faculty of concentration is also strongly developed through this practice, um, and can also lead to very distinctive and unusual states of mind uh, from just slightly altered states of consciousness that just feel a little bit different from our ordinary perception uh, to really dramatically altered states of consciousness and very um, unusual, highly unusual experiences. So it can happen that we mistake one of these kinds of concentration-related experiences for insight. That's something that can happen. These kinds of experiences of strong concentration uh, can feel very good, very blissful, uh, or very unusual, very different from our ordinary perception, or both. And often they actually feel better than insight in the sense of providing just more pleasant feeling, stronger pleasant feeling. But the thing is that they don't lead in and of themselves to wisdom. They don't really bring deeper, clearer understanding of the nature of things. They may come along with genuine insight and can be a support for it, but just by themselves, you know, they kind of come, they go, they're interesting, they're enjoyable, um, but they just kind of are what they are, and they're not necessarily tremendously significant. But if we're not familiar with them and we don't really understand them, we can kind of talk ourselves into thinking that there's some kind of insight 
and we can get caught up in wanting more and more of that kind of experience, you know, looking for it, trying to arouse it, trying to get back to it, which we may or may not be able to do. As, and as Kamala said, we can get caught in these places in practice, you know, really believing that we're on the path of wisdom when actually we've entered into a little bit kind of a spiritual cul-de-sac. Which is one reason that it's really helpful to check in with an experienced teacher that can maybe see with a little more clarity, with a little more perspective what's going on. And even the most experienced meditators, you know, when we're in the thick of this process, when we're really, you know, down in the dirt of it, it's really hard to see where you're on the path and really helpful to have a good spiritual friend, you know, to help guide you. So it may be sometimes that when a yogi comes in to talk to us, we have to burst their bubble a little bit. And people aren't always happy, you know, with what we might tell them. And this isn't out of any desire to be hurtful, but really out of compassion and friendship and not wanting to to see them get caught in places where we've seen other yogis get caught, uh, places where we ourselves have been caught. (laughs) And all three of us can relate many times in our practice when we've had to have our own bubbles burst. It's just part of the process at times. And with hindsight, we can usually see, you know, what a gift this actually is, you know, to have somebody that cares enough to take the time and make the effort to point out to us where we might be veering off course. In my own practice, uh, during the time, uh, early during the year that I was ordained in Burma as a nun, staying uh, at Upandita's place in Yangon, The first few months of that time were just really difficult, like just going through the whole culture shock of just living in Burma in in what for a Westerner, relatively primitive uh, circumstances. And then also being in robes, you know, having my head shaved for the first time and adjusting to all like the etiquette of just being a monastic. And then also on top of all that, doing this practice, which over there is done very rigorously and is very uh, quite demanding. So it was just really hard at first But after a while, you know, just sticking at it, you know, the momentum of my concentration did start to pick up. And I started to have an experience that was quite delightful, where I'd sit down, I'd start to focus on the breath, the concentration would get stronger, and I would be bathed in a beautiful white light, you know. (laughs) Kind of like this, you know, life after death experience that you hear described sometimes, you know, just bathed in white light and a sense of well-being and serenity. And over time, over a period of maybe you know a week or two, this uh, experience became very stable to where it was my dominant experience in the meditation. And I would go in and report to my teacher, you know, as noticing light and lightness in the body and comfort and bliss and joy and yada yada yada. <laughs> and the teacher would be just kind of like, hmm, okay. <laughs> and I kind of thought like, you know. Uh, he just didn't want to let on how special my experience was, you know. <laughs> he didn't want me to get too full of myself, so he's kind of playing it cool, you know. But this went on for weeks, actually. It went on for weeks, you know, where it was just in this really just persistent experience where not, nothing else was happening in my experience, and my teacher just wasn't particularly impressed with it. <laughs> and so one day I went in, and he spoke a little bit of English. He was learning English, one of the younger monks, um, but not perfect. But um, I went in one day and I started to describe my experience again and he just held up a hand and said, stop. And he said, where do you think this is getting you? And oh, I was crushed. 
<laughs> because if I was really honest with myself, you know, I knew, I knew that I was spinning in circles, you know, as nice as it was, this experience, as special as it was, you know, compared to what I'd experienced by that point, you know, I knew that I wasn't really learning anything within it. I was just hanging out. And so, you know, as mortified as I was at the time, you know, I'm actually tremendously grateful for that guidance. You know, I was able from that point then to kind of come back to the basics, come back to the breath, reestablish my mindfulness. And then from that point, I was able to move on in my practice and it all became a lot smoother. So at times we just need that. At times we just need that little nudge. So we can misinterpret psychological openings as insight, as insight with the big eye, or we can misinterpret these kinds of strong concentration experiences as insight with the big eye. Another thing that can happen is that we can get caught up in looking for or striving for an insight that we haven't yet experienced, that just isn't ready to come our way yet. Especially if we've done some reading or study of kind of the models of insight and how it happens, how it unfolds, we can get caught in this kind of striving of leaning into the experience we're waiting for, of trying to reach someplace in practice where we think we want to be or we ought to be. And it can get to the point where we're not actually connecting with the present moments enough to see what's actually happening right now in our practice. The striving and that searching for insight, you know, ironically, can take the wind out of the sails of our practice so that the momentum doesn't build and we don't cultivate those very qualities of heart and mind that will actually lead to the arising of insight and wisdom. There's a great story from the commentaries um, to the, to the Pali Canon that deals with the subject of striving and expectations and practice. It's the story of the venerable Mahasiva, who was a prominent Buddhist teacher in ancient India. He probably lived sometime after the Buddha's lifetime, maybe a few hundred years after the Buddha's lifetime. And he was said to have taught the Buddhist scriptures at 18 different Dharma centers, basically and that thousands of monks had become enlightened under his guidance. So he had, you know, probably a pretty impressive grasp of the Buddhist teachings. But he hadn't actually realized any true insight in his own practice. He hadn't had time for it because he was just so busy teaching. He was a really, you know, prominent and sought-after teacher. And to make a long story shorter, <laughs> one day a former pupil of his who had attained not only full enlightenment, but kind of an impressive array of uh, paranormal powers, you know, supernormal powers, came and visited him. And he displayed some of these powers, and he also kind of uh, gave uh, Mahasiva talking to for not having attended to his own practice. And Mahasiva was deeply embarrassed by this, <laughs> to have the student show up and kind of, you know, call him to task. So he determined to take off into the forest and to work on his own practice and to attain what the student of his had attained or more, preferably more. <laughs> and he thought, you know, it ought to be pretty easy for somebody like me to get enlightened. You know, I know the Buddhist teachings inside and out, backwards and forwards. You know, two or three days should be plenty of time. <laughs> I'll be back before they even miss me and then, you know, then I'll show them. 
So Mahasiva went off to this retreat that he found in the woods, a secluded spot, and he practiced for two days. And he was somewhat surprised to find at the end of it that he wasn't enlightened yet. But he wasn't too put out at this point. He thought, well, you know, I just must need a little bit more time, you know, two days, you know, after all, it's not very long. And the monsoon season was just starting, the rainy season. So he thought, you know, I'll do a three-month retreat, like the Buddha always recommended. And then I'll be able to kind of return triumphant at the end of it. So Mahasiva kept practicing, and the three months of the rainy season passed, and he still wasn't enlightened. So now he really did start to become kind of alarmed, because it was well known that many monks and nuns and even lay people got enlightened during the course of the three-month retreat. And yet he hadn't managed it, even with all of his knowledge of the scriptures. So he really started to feel inadequate. And his high opinion that he'd had of himself started to crumble. And he sat down and he wept bitterly with disappointment and despair. And it's said that from then on, Mahasiva kept his bedroll folded up. That he spent all of his time practicing and didn't even lie down to sleep fearing that he might lose precious time to practice. And in this way, he passed 30 years in secluded retreat. And at the end of every rainy season, when he found that yet another year had passed and he still wasn't enlightened, he would sit down and cry with discouragement and self-pity. And at the end of his 30th year in retreat like this, as he was sitting and crying, he happened to notice the sound of somebody else crying nearby, which caught him by surprise because this little valley that he had picked as his uh, retreat place was very secluded, and he hardly ever saw anybody else come through there. So he called out, who's there? Who's crying? I am a diva, sir. <laughs> said a celestial being who, was, who had been passing through the valley. What are you doing crying here, said Mahasiva. Well, I was just passing by, and I noticed how you were practicing. And based on your example, I figured I could attain two or three stages of enlightenment at least, just by crying. <laughs> so I thought I'd give it a try. <laughs> and with that, the deva let out kind of a mischievous little laugh, and he disappeared. So this kind of, you know, brought Mahasiva up short. You know, he thought to himself, oh my gosh, you know, has it come to this, that the passing devas are mocking me? Like, how, how low can I go? This is the bottom of a barrel. <laughs> but then he reflected on what the deva had said. And he realized, that, he realized that this deva had a point. That as hard as he had been, had been practicing for so many years, all the time it had been with an attitude of dejection and self-pity, and he had never seen it. He had never realized it. So it was as if he could see his own heart and mind as they were for the first time in that moment. So Mahasiva directed his attention to those difficult emotions, to the dejection, to the self-pity, seeing them with clarity and compassion. And little by little, his mind calmed and his discouragement abated and he began to develop mindfulness and concentration and insight. And in this way, soon afterwards, Mahasiva became one of the arhants, 
a fully enlightened being. So let's sit for a minute. You should train yourself in this way. In the seen is only what is seen. In the heard is only what is heard. In the sensed is only what is sensed. In the cognized is only what is cognized. This is how you should train yourself. When for you there's only what is seen in the seen, only what is heard in the heard, only what is sensed in the sensed, only what is cognized in the cognized, then you will not be with that. When you are not with that, then you will not be in that. When you are not in that, then you will be neither here nor beyond nor in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.